We're continuing in this reverse engineering series that we've been in for a while, and to be really honest with you, Jim and I don't know how long we'll be in it. We're just going to find out. Um, last week, we did kind of part one of a two-part talk on men and marriage, and so tonight we're going to dive back into men and marriage, and I don't know about how you guys feel, the guys in the room that are married, but when I kind of think back to my wedding day, that was a really, really good day for me. It was, it was a good day, and... Yeah, now, as you can see, not only was I um, not in very good shape back then, um, but when I think back to that day, uh, that was actually, even though it was a great day, for me emotionally and spiritually and mentally, that was one of the low points of my life just because of where I was at that time. And so when you take two people at a very young age who are both sinners and you put them together in the context of marriage, it can be really, really tough. And, and Allie and I both agreed that of our 11 years of marriage, the first couple of years were definitely the hardest. And you kind of shift from this great wedding day to a honeymoon and stuff like that. And then if you're anything like it was for us, you go from a, a kind of cool honeymoon to a duplex with mice, all right? And we had... We caught 12 mice in one night, all right? It was, it was gross. We had paper-thin walls. Our landlord lived next door. She smoked like crazy. Our whole place smelled bad. It was, you could hear her TV on the wall all night long. It was just one of those things of like, and then you put us together. She was going to school and I was working and, and we had vastly di- have vastly different personalities in it. It doesn't look anything like the Garden of Eden very, very quickly. And so when I think back to those early years of marriage and all the complications and things like that, The one thing that became really, really clear to me as I was reflecting on those days is simply this. The one thing that was the bottom line was I needed to be a better man. Yeah. Luke even wore his flannel shirt for that. It was good. Good little Eddie Vedder tribute. Hey, um, if you got your Bibles, go back to where we left off last week, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you remember if you were here last week, we got through all of chapter 2. Tonight, we're also going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to get a little head start and mark your spot there, you can pull out your program. It'll all be there and on the screens as well. But last week, if you remember, we left off with a wedding. And this week, we're quickly going to move into a war. And that's how it works for some of us, isn't it? That's kind of how it plays out sometimes. And if you reflect back to that wedding day, for most of us, that day was probably a pretty good day, but then there was a day after that day, or there was a week after that week, or there was a month or a year after that day where everything changed. And two people who stood there face to face and made vows and promises and made a covenant before God and with each other to always protect and always serve and always love and always do all these things didn't, right? And so how does it happen so easily that two people who once stood face to face and made vows now stand literally back to back opposed to one another? How does that happen so easily? Remember where we left off last week in Genesis 2 verse 25. Remember how beautiful this was? Look at this. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's not just talking about physically, like we said, that that means intimate on every level. And that's a very, very good thing. That's a beautiful thing. But then something happens. Look at this in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Really quickly, tonight's not the night where I'm going to try to convince you that that Satan is real and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I believe that he is. I believe that because the Bible, I believe, is our ultimate authority for life. And that's what the Bible teaches. But that's not where we're going tonight. I think we all would agree that there's a significant presence of evil in this world that's dead set against us. And the Bible teaches that there's an enemy who's set out to kill, steal, and destroy. So 
With that in mind, let me ask you this question. Why do you think Satan waits until this moment to show up on the scene? Why does he wait until they're married to enter the story? I think the answer is really, really simple. More damage, right? You see, Satan's really, really crafty. He's really, really smart. He knows when to attack. He knows how to attack. And he he knows what is likely to create more damage. See, I imagine he could have come on the scene before Eve was created or before they got married, but he now has this beautiful thing that he can potentially tarnish, and so that's why he waits until this moment to attack, and he does it in a very, very subtle way. He says this simple phrase, did God really say? See how subtle that is? It's a simple question. It's just a conversation, right? And I would say this is how evil often takes root in our hearts, which is a simple question. I get it all the time. Did God really say? Did Jesus really mean? And it's very, very subtle, but even though it's subtle, it's powerful. And then he goes on, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? It's not what God said at all. So he's, he's twisting God's words. And so now let's see how the woman responds. Look at verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from, from the from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So this part's really, really interesting, all right? Because she immediately identifies the lie, okay? So she is competent, she is quick, she is smart. She identifies the lie and this means that Adam did his job, right? Remember last week we talked about how it was gonna be his responsibility to communicate with his wife this rule that God gave him before he ever created the woman. And so apparently Adam did that. He communicated the rule to his wife. But there's also something else going on here that's very, very easy to miss. She adds something to God's command that wasn't already there. Did you notice it? She says, and we must not touch it. God didn't say that. He said, you, you can't eat from that tree. Go back to Genesis 2.17, you'll see it. And so she does something that we all often do. She adds words to God's mouth. Now look at this in verse four. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's a liar. That's what he's saying. God's holding out on you, Eve. God has really bad intentions towards you. God's not interested in what's best for you. God actually wants to rob your joy. He wants to oppress you. He wants to hold you down and keep you under his thumb. See, I've taught this to you many times, but I think this one simple question is very, very important to ask, and it's simply this. What do you think God intends towards you? What do you think God wants for you? What do you think God wants out of you? Because if you... If you answer that question, you'll also discover what's driving most of your actions in your life. So do you think God's holding out on you? If so, that will reveal why you're making most, if not all, of the decisions you're making in your life. And this is really, really interesting because here we are a couple verses deep, a few minutes into this sermon that's supposed to be addressed primarily to men in a, in a, in a series that's been primarily addressed to men, and we're only talking so far about a woman. Because she's the only one mentioned in the story so far. Which should lead us to a really big, important, relevant question right now. It goes like this. Where's Adam? Right? Where is he? He's not been mentioned yet. Is he off playing? Is he taking a nap? Is he gone fishing? What's the deal? And we'll see in a moment. Look at this in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. 
she also gave some to her husband who was, give me the word, with her, and he ate it. Where was Adam? Right there, with her, doing nothing, saying nothing, just passively sitting back while his wife is attacked and deceived and led into sin. See, there are two different kinds of sins. There are sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things that we do. Sins of omission are things that we don't do that we should do. This is a sin of omission. This is Adam being passive. This is Adam failing to do the right thing. Does that sound familiar to anybody? This is one of the significant sins that many, many men, if we're honest, we struggle with. It's the sin of passivity. We just sit back and let things go and we don't intervene and we don't protect and we don't get involved. And that happens because it was infused in our DNA from our first father, Adam. It's not like the old Puritan proverb that used to go like this, while Adam was away, Eve went astray. That's not true. Read the Bible. It's right there. He was with her. Not protecting her, not taking responsibility, not intervening, and ultimately sinning. And what was once very, very good goes very, very bad very, very quickly, and we move from a wedding to a war. Look at this in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So they move from being naked and ashamed, which is a very, very good thing, all right, to being, to being totally ashamed and hiding and they're, and they're covering up, which sets the precedent for how we all would react to sin for the rest of human history. When we sin, we hide, we cover up, and we run, right? And so this is really, really interesting. Look back at verse nine. This is kind of subtle, but you need to notice it. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Who would you expect, based on what we've read in the story so far, for God to call out to first? Meaning, put everything you know about what we've been teaching in this series so far aside, just based on the story, who do you think he should be calling out first? Who sinned first? Eve did, right? But for some reason, when God comes calling, who does he call for? Adam. Why? It goes back to that one word that keeps coming up over and over again in this series. What is it? Responsibility. And he asks a question that I believe resounds into the year 2012 that he's asking to men today, which is simply this, where are you? I mean, look around at our culture. Isn't that a very good question to ask to men? Where are you? Where are you, Adam? Maybe that's the question God's asking you tonight. Now look at this in verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And the blame game begins, right? Adam. It's not my fault, it's her fault. And ultimately, God, let's be honest, I mean, I'm a logical guy, it's actually your fault, right? Because you gave me the woman, I didn't ask for her, I didn't need her, I was quite content with the giraffe, I didn't even need her, right? <laughs> and the woman, the devil made me do it, right? Wedding to a war. And we've been living in the fallout ever since. 
Time out for a second, all right? This is ultimately where a lot of people, especially today in, in, in our generation, that go, oh, exactly. So why get married? Exactly, Scott, you're proving my point. That's why I don't ever want to get married or I don't want to get married again. And I would still argue today that I think there's some very compelling reasons to get married. There's a lot of them. I'll give you a couple of them today. One is this, and we mentioned this last week. There is a gift available to us in marriage that is only available to us in marriage and cannot be experienced anywhere else, and it's called intimacy. The second thing is this. Marriage is ultimately not about us. It's about something much, much bigger, and I'll show you what I mean throughout today. See, strangely enough, the best and most controversial teaching on marriage in the New Testament was given by a single guy named Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, wrote Ephesians, which we're going to look at, and he modeled his teaching on marriage after a single guy named Jesus, all right? So Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, was single, and he points us to Jesus, who was single, on how to model our marriages. That seems kind of strange, all right? But we'll understand why in a minute. In the midst of this war, in the midst of this sinful, broken world, he's saying, listen, this is the way I want you to view marriage, okay? And this is the way God wants you to do marriage, now let me also say this, I got a bunch of disclaimers here, all right? What I'm about to teach is something that we've taught here before. So if you've been around here for a while, you'll go, I- I've heard some of this before, all right? Because we've taught this several times, all right? The last time I taught this, and I've been teaching this in our premarital and marital seminars for years now, but the last time I taught this in, in, in main weekend services, I anticipated there being some criticism. What I didn't anticipate was almost all of the criticism came from men, not from women, I thought it'd be the other way around. But the more I've reflected on this, the more I understand why. Because what we're about to read and what we're about to unpack puts a huge, enormous amount of responsibility on the shoulders of men. But I want you also to understand something else today, okay? I want you to understand my heart. My heart today is not to make a point. That's not my goal. My goal is not for you to walk out of here and go, well, I guess he made his point begrudgingly. That's not the deal, all right? The Bible makes the point very, very clear. That's between you and God, all right? What I'm in for today is to make a difference. What I want is what I think God wants, which is I want our marriages to be different. I want my marriage, my marriage with me and Allie to be better in light of what God has in mind for me. And as we dive into this scripture, I want you to understand that no marriage on the planet has ever or will ever live up to this fully, which is why we need grace, which is why we need Jesus, which is why we need the cross, because we can't live up. But we also need truth in our life, which points us to a better way to live. So some of what we're getting ready to study here is going to seem so old-fashioned to some people in the room, not to everybody, but to some people in the room. It's going to feel so out of date. It's It's going to land in a very offensive way on some ears. Some people are going to hear this and go, oh, that can't be right. Let me just say a couple things, all right? Because some of you have already read in the program ahead of time, you're like, got your arms crossed, you're ready, all right? Let me just say a couple things. Sometimes I think we hear certain words and those words have baggage for us and we ascribe or attach meaning to those words that the Bible doesn't intend. And so if you will, at least give me the chance to define those words as the Bible defines them before you freak out. You still might freak out. You still might disagree and you still might not like it, but make sure you freak out, disagree, and don't like it based on the right terms. All right, so the last question I would would ask is this, and this is only to the women in the room. Let me go back to that question. Women, ladies, what do you think God's intentions are towards you? 
Knowing what you know to be true about God, knowing what you've studied in the Bible, and knowing how he's interacted with you in your life, what do you think God's intentions are towards you? Because if you believe the lie that Eve believed, and you think that God is holding out on you, and that God's trying to oppress you, and that God's trying to hold you down, you're going to hear these verses through that filter. What I'm asking for you to do is to kind of let your guard down a little bit and ask yourself honestly, is it possible that God actually has what's best in mind, not just for you, but for men and for marriages and for people in general? So here we go. Let's look at this and see what happens. All right. Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that's already a very countercultural thing to say. The word submit means to voluntarily yield in love. All right, so he's speaking to all Christians, men and women. That's who this is addressed to. And he's going, listen, the hallmark of a Christian community should be submission. In other words, a voluntary yielding in love, a deference to one another, serving one another, looking to each other's needs before our own needs. That should be the hallmark of that community because That was the hallmark of who? Jesus. In the next phrase, it says, submit out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Jesus. In other words, Jesus always said these two things go hand in hand. Love God, love people. You cannot separate those two things. If you try to separate those two things, you're not loving God and you're not loving people. They go together. Those are the two greatest things commandments. And so that's the 40,000 foot perspective on what should be the hallmark of just Christians in general. Now he's going to push on to how that should play out within the context of marriage. So look at this in verse 22. Wives, and I would encourage everybody in the room to pay attention to what's addressed to them. All right. So husbands don't highlight this verse. All right. We'll get to that in a second. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. All right. Same word voluntarily yield in love to your husbands. That would be a way of saying that. Now take a breath and let's address a couple things. I want you to notice some things. It's not talking about how, it's talking about how wives relate to husbands. It's not talking about how women relate to men. Does that make sense? He's not telling all women to submit to all men. That would be a dangerous thing to say or do. I have a daughter. I would never tell my daughter, submit to any and every man who comes into your life. No, all right? No, that's not the way that works, okay? You might also say, but Scott, that's also a very dangerous thing to say to wives because that can, they can have very dangerous husbands, and I would agree. But the teaching doesn't stop here. God's going to articulate what kind of a husband you're supposed to be involved with here and the submission that that's supposed to be under. And so, so let's take a look at what he says to husbands, and we'll get to that in a few verses, but look at this in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I want you to notice something. It doesn't say husbands be the head says the husband is the head, as Christ is the head of the church. So that's for good or for bad, right? Again, that's why God called Adam first when, when they sinned, because he's the head. He's the one ultimately responsible. Is Eve responsible for her sin? Yes, absolutely. She is. But Adam bore a unique responsibility as the head. So husbands, the question is not, are you the head? The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. 
Let me just say a couple things, all right? There are a couple different kinds of men. There's one group of men who love this verse. They highlight this verse. One group of men who, they are so excited that this verse came up. They're, they're going to put this on the refrigerator. They're going to do all kinds of things with this verse because they think this verse makes them the boss. And they want to use this verse to, to lord it over their wives or at worst, abuse or manipulate their wife with the Bible. If that's you, a couple things I need to say to you. One is grow up, all right? The other would simply be this. If you do that, look right at me. You're going to have to answer to the living God and explain to him why you used his word to abuse one of his daughters. And I've got a daughter. I'm trying to think if you abuse my daughter, what excuse you could give me to where I would go, oh, it's okay. I don't think you could offer it. God's a father, and he ferociously loves his daughters, which means this. When I sin against my wife, not only, do I have to, not only do I have to apologize to her and ask for her forgiveness, I apologize to her heavenly father, and I repent and ask for his forgiveness because she's his daughter. And that's the first kind of man. I hope there's none of those in this room. The second kind of man, and I know there's a lot of you in this room, Hears this verse, these verses, and recognizes something much bigger going on here. And you're perceptive and you recognize right off the bat that you are not in fact a boss. You are in fact responsible. And you do in fact have a great burden to bear. And this thing called marriage, you've already picked up on this because you're perceptive, is much, much bigger Marriage is meant to be a picture, a portrait, a divine reenactment, a dramatization, a reflection, if you will, of something much bigger, and that's called Christ and the church. Jesus and his church, who's often in the Bible referred to as his bride. See, when God came up with this thing called marriage, he did not create marriage for its own sake. Marriage is meant to point to something more significant, meaning this. Here's what that means, all right? If someone were to walk up to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, could you explain kind of how you interact with the church? Could you kind of explain your relationship with the church and the nuances of that and what that looks like? Could you do that? What this is teaching is this. He ought to be able to look at my marriage to my wife and go, yeah, it looks a lot like Scott and Allie's marriage. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? It's a lot of pressure. See, marriage is meant to be a parable of something else, and we each have unique roles to play. Women are to play the part of the bride, the church. Men are to play the part of Jesus, the groom. You know what that is, men? That is a huge, heavy responsibility. Which means that, men, our job in this whole thing called marriage is to treat our wives exactly the way Jesus would. How about that for a challenge? So let me ask you this. Would Jesus ever force or manipulate a woman into submission? Can you point to anywhere in Scripture where Jesus abused or manipulated anyone, much less a woman? Can you point to a place in Scripture where Jesus demanded or commanded respect? I don't think you can find it. So what is it supposed to look like? What is this headship thing supposed to look like? Because if you just leave the definition hanging out there and don't explain to us what it looks like, in our sinfulness, we're going to get this wrong, which is why he goes at length in describing what headship's supposed to look like based on the way that Jesus is the head of the church. Look at verse 25. Husbands, that means husbands, this is the part you highlight, all right? 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, the way our love is supposed to be made clear and evident to our wives is the same way that Jesus' love was made most clear and most evident to his bride, the church. What was that? How did Jesus make his love most clear, most vivid, most obvious? How did he do that? He died on a cross. He died on a cross. And you know what? He did it voluntarily. He voluntarily yielded in love for us and gave himself up for us for our benefit and for our good. That's how you know Jesus loves you. You know what that's ultimately called? Or one way you could refer to it? That's called protection. Protection. That's, that's Jesus getting between us and danger. And every man has something deeply ingrained in him, a sense of responsibility to protect all women, and especially their wives. Here's the way I've always kind of tried to teach this, all right? When I was, I don't know, I think I was like five or six years old, I lived with my mom and my Aunt Rosie, all right? Love my Aunt Rosie, okay? She took care of me all the time. We did stuff together. And, and so I remember this day vividly. We're walking down the sidewalk in the neighborhood. The road's over there. Rosie's right here. I'm right here, and I'm holding Rosie's hand. We're walking down the sidewalk. I don't know where we're going and what we're doing. But she's taking this opportunity to teach me, which she always did, all right? And she's, she's looking at me, and she goes, Scotty, and she's the only person on the planet allowed to call me that she goes Scotty one day you're going to be walking down the sidewalk with a girl and you're going to be holding her hand and when you do you'll be the one over here closer to the road and I'm telling you as a five or six year old boy something deep within me just went yeah that makes sense I get it like I didn't have to ask for clarifying questions it just resonated with me. It's the same reason I see so many guys who just nod back at me every time I tell that story because deeply ingrained within us is this need to protect women. This is ultimately what Adam did not do for Eve, right? He stood on the wrong side of the sidewalk. He didn't get between Eve and danger. Now let me give a disclaimer, all right? Ladies, I really want you to hear this, okay? This has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with competence or ability. This whole protection thing has nothing to do with, you can't fend for yourself or you can't do something on your own. It has absolutely nothing to do with that. All right, so so here's what I mean, all right? For all the guys in the room, okay, if you leave here tonight, if you leave with your wife, your girlfriend, your sister, your daughter, your niece, whoever it is that you're walking with, all right? If you walk out of here tonight towards your car and here comes a dude running towards you and it's evident that he means to do violence to the two of you. He's gonna mug you, he's gonna rob you, he's gonna take your car, he's gonna do something like that. It does not matter if the woman you're with holds a black belt in every mixed martial art known to man. If you, in that moment, go, get him, honey, (laughs) something's wrong, all right? The most tame way I could refer to that would be to say this, that would be inappropriate to your masculinity. Isn't that well-crafted the way I said that? I'm growing up a little bit, all right? Again, you may get in there, get your tail kicked, and she has to go in and rescue you and finish the job on the guy, but you go down swinging on her behalf. That's what that means. 
to protect her. Why? Because our role is to be like Jesus and Jesus protected the church when he went to the cross. So in a day when one in four women is sexually abused, what is that a direct result of? Men not protecting women. It's more than just physical. It means looking out for the good of women in all things. That's one of the things that I think makes Christianity following Jesus so beautiful and so unique because Christianity, unlike any other world religion, elevates the value of women as image bearers of God. And you can't argue with that. Just read the way Jesus treated women. So the question becomes this, men, are you protecting your wives? Scott Nickel, are you protecting your wife physically, emotionally, and spiritually? We protect as Jesus protects. So when I think of my relationship with Jesus, the fact that Jesus protects me and went to the cross for me, that makes me eager to follow Jesus because he proved his love for me when he died for me. What else do I need to know, right? So let me ask the ladies in the room this. Wouldn't a husband like Jesus be someone that you would be eager to follow? A man who voluntarily takes responsibility and serves you and gives up his wants and his needs and his desires and his preferences for your sake, out of love, for your good. Is there any woman in the room who goes, nope, nope, give me a guy who loves softball. Give me a guy who I have to pry out of the recliner. Give me a guy who I have to stand in front of the television just to get him to look at me. Give me a guy who I have to beg to initiate conversation with. Give me a guy who I have to plead with to get involved with our children. Anybody? Oh, of course not. Here's what I'm trying to, trying to say here, all right? Being a servant and being a leader are not mutually exclusive things. In fact, I would say this, servanthood does not nullify leadership, it demonstrates it. It defines it. How do you know that? Again, just look at Jesus. If you get nothing else out of this sermon, just get this, look at Jesus. Here's what I mean. When Jesus was was on his way to Jerusalem, getting ready to actually be crucified, getting ready for Passover, on their way to Jerusalem, his disciples, as they often did, were bickering with one another over which one of them was the greatest. And this little kind of charade carried on as they secured this place to celebrate the Passover meal and they get to this upper room and they get up into this upper room and and because they were getting ready to share this really important meal and in Middle Eastern culture you lay down and recline by a table, it was vital that people's feet got washed before you ate dinner, especially in a culture where you're walking around in sandals through muddy streets with all kinds of animals and things like that. And so what would happen is, is you would enter a place and there would either be a servant who would wash your feet or you would be given a towel and a basin and and you would wash your own feet and they get to this upper room and nobody has washed their feet they're still busy bickering over which one of them is the greatest Jesus quietly gets up takes off his outer garment picks up a towel and a basin of water goes to one of these disciples that's busy arguing about which one of them is the greatest and starts washing his feet And nobody really notices until he moves to the next person and a few people start to notice and he moves on and the whole room starts to quiet down. And what I'm saying is this, is in that moment, if you could, standing outside of that story, interject yourself into the story, press pause and take a survey and go, hey guys, quick question. Who's the leader of this bunch? On the count of three, point to them. One, two, three. Where does every finger point to? The guy who's on his knees washing crap off of their feet. That one. 
to the one going first, to the one taking the initiative to serve others. See, being a leader in our home means going first in serving our wives. And get this, guys, and this is going to hurt, okay? Regardless of her response. And I've had a lot of guys email in this series and go, Scott, I'm doing the best I can. I've been loving, serving, protecting, providing. I've been trying to do all those things. And to be really honest with you, Scott, I'm getting nothing back. I'm getting no respect. I'm getting no love. She's not hearing. She's not receiving. And all I can simply say is this. I'm sorry, but that's not your deal. She's responsible for that. That's on her. But it doesn't change that you need to go first in serving her. How do you know that, Scott? How could you say such a thing? Simple. Because Jesus washed Judas's feet. You know who Judas is? The one who betrayed Jesus to his death for some silver? He was in the room. Jesus washed his feet, and not long after, Judas got up on those pretty, pristine feet and walked out the door and betrayed Jesus to his death. You see, servant leadership is not qualified by a good response from those who are being served or led, which means, gentlemen, that we don't get to give up on her. Again, why? Because it goes back to the parable that we're trying to reenact. Does Jesus ever give up on the church? No. No. And so it keeps going. Look, look at this in verse 26. This is kind of confusing. I'll try to make it simple. Look at this. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It simply means this. Jesus takes the initiative to move us along to become more like him. The fancy religious word for that is sanctification. And what this is teaching is simply this, as a husband, part of our role in our wife's sanctification is to make sure that we bring the Bible into our relationship. And ladies, just so you know, that's a very intimidating proposition for us. And I've told you this before, but for the first like nine years of my marriage, I think it was my biggest sin in my marriage because I could teach and talk to hundreds and thousands of people about the Bible, but I didn't do that with my wife. I didn't do that with my wife. We were on a men's retreat, me and a bunch of guys around here a few years ago, and I was just like deeply convicted about that. And so the steps I've taken since then are simply this. Allie and I study a book of the Bible together, and by together, I mean that's not at the same time, all right? Because I get up very, very early in the morning. That's when I read, and that's when I study, and things like that. And my wife's not really even a Christian before nine o'clock in the morning, all right? She's just, she's just not. She would tell you that, all right? And so... So she reads the Bible in the afternoon when Silas is hopefully taking a nap. And so what we do is we email or we dialogue back and forth throughout the day about what we've been studying. And to be really honest with you, I know that's a baby step, but it's been really helpful and really, really big in our life. So maybe that's something you can do in your marriage. And ladies, can I just tell you, a lot of the reason why that's so intimidating for us is because it's born out of a, out of a fear that we will appear inadequate or foolish, and it's just another one of the ways we hide because of our shame. But the challenge to you ladies would simply be this. You can either help that or hurt that. Because if you belittle him when he tries to pray at dinner, or you make fun of him when he tries to make, bring up the sermon and the ride home tonight, or you make fun of him when he wants to read the Bible with you, let me just tell you what will happen. You will crush him 
you'll crush him. And some of you, you do that really, really well. Listen to me, all right? And trust my heart on this. If he takes the initiative to do this and you don't do everything within your power to support him and encourage him and hold him up in that, you are doing that to the detriment of your own marriage and your own joy. And be honest, you're being really, really foolish and sinful on top of that. So push him along in this in a kind and gentle way. Guys, grab a Bible and grab one of the Grow a Pair books and read that with your wife and go through the verses that it talks about with with your wife. Now, look at this, kind of back to the, the big picture of this whole thing. Look at this, verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. This is very politically incorrect what this is teaching, all right? You're like, since when have you ever cared about that, Scott? I don't, all right. What this is teaching is simply this. Men, it's our responsibility to put bread on the table. It is. That's what feeds and cares for means. It means to nourish your family, to provide for your family. And a couple disclaimers, but I don't want to be too gentle here, all right? I believe this is teaching a sense of responsibility that we should have over the course of our relationship together. There can be seasons in the midst of that where it makes sense, where, where she goes to work so that you can go back to school and so she's doing all the providing while you're pre- preparing to provide and things like that, all right? But it means that over the course of a lifetime, it's ultimately your responsibility to provide. That doesn't mean women can't work. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible's saying. Women have always worked, all right? They work, and they work really, really hard, whether that's in the home or outside of the home, okay? Again, this has absolutely nothing to do with competency, okay? My wife is so much smarter than me, okay? She could make way more money than me if she worked full-time. She works one day a week because her heart is pulling her towards being with our children most of the time, And that's what providing means, is providing an opportunity for your wife to pursue what she wants to pursue. It simply means, practically speaking, you don't set up a lifestyle, and if you're really, really young, and you've just gotten married, or you're going to be getting married, you got to hear this one, okay? There's so many of, of us in this room that would tell you this is the truth, all right? Do not set up a lifestyle that demands two incomes. Because if you do, what happens if one of you gets sick? What happens if she gets pregnant and goes, I don't want to work anymore, but you got the mortgage and all the car payments and all the stuff that was based on two incomes. So just practically, pragmatically speaking, don't set up a lifestyle that demands two incomes. Now, I know that's all very politically incorrect, and some people just go, this teaching, this is all just based on cultural stuff that was going on in the Bible at the time. That's not where Paul roots this, just so you know. All the teaching on roles in marriage is rooted in creation, and we'll see that in a moment, not in culture. It means it's rooted in the way God set things up, the way he wired us as men and women to have a part to play. And time out for a second, all right? Let's just take a breather for a second. Consider everything that's been said so far. What do you think a wife who has a husband who does this well, notice I didn't say perfectly because no husband will, but what do you think a wife who has a husband who does this well looks like? What do you think her countenance is like? 
Do you think a wife who has a husband who does this well feels oppressed? Do you think she feels devalued? Do you think she feels walked on, pushed down, or marginalized? How do you think she appears to other women? Do you think that she walks with confidence in her identity? Do you think she feels loved and supported and cared for? Do you think she feels and demonstrates freedom and joy? My answer is simply yes. Because the women I know who carry all those characteristics have one thing in common, a husband who loves and serves them very, very well. So again, why would God say all this? It ultimately goes back to God's intentions for us. He wants good for women. He wants good for men. He wants good for children. He wants good for families. Now look at this, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? It's from last week, Genesis chapter 2. This is rooted in creation. Look at verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. It's a profound mystery. It's heavy. Marriage is mysterious, and it's beautiful, and it's, it's just a big ball of wax, isn't it? And it can be very, very overwhelming. Now, how would we go about applying everything we just heard? I'll give you two words. Love and respect. Love and respect. And they come out of the next verse. Look at this in verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let me ask you a question. Why does God give two different commands? Why does he tell husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands? Why don't he say love, love, or respect and respect? Because God knows us deeply because he created us. He knows that ultimately women are pursuing being loved and feeling significant and valued and treasured and safe and protected and provided for. And when that doesn't happen, all hell breaks loose. Isn't that true? But know this, ladies, none of that will ever perfectly come through any man except for Jesus. Which means this, the most important man in your life has to be Jesus. Followed by a husband. And tell me this statement isn't true. When men aren't being respected or even feeling respected, all hell breaks loose, right? And men, we try to get more out of human relationships than those relationships can provide and we demand that our wives be everything to us and they can't be. Which is why our first priority has to be our relationship with Jesus. And when we have that relationship in order, we can be free to love our wives well for who they are. And I know the argument. Yeah, but she's not very lovable, and he's not very respectable. And so we're at a standoff, right? And so in the midst of the standoff, the question becomes this. Who goes first in moving towards the other person? Every guy in the room look right at me. We do. We do. We go first. How do you know that, Scott? Because, again, we have a role to play, don't we? And who was that role? Jesus, right? Let me ask you this, guys. Were any of us very lovable when Jesus went to the cross for us? No. That's why he went to the cross for us. That's why we bring up this verse all the time around here, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, you may in fact be totally correct. She's not very lovable. She's not very deserving of love right now. Neither were you when Jesus died for you. See, our love is to model Jesus's. 
I bought this, uh, this Bible for my kids a while back. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's phenomenal. Get it for your kids if they're like elementary age and younger. And the way it defines Jesus' love is beautiful. Look at this on the back screen. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever, love. See, guys, her, her response is not your responsibility. She may never soften, but I'll tell you this. When a man takes the initiative to go first, to show love, to provide and to protect, even when it's not deserving, not only is that worthy of respect, but I've seen it happen. It usually gains respect with great joy. See, our culture teaches us to be independent, doesn't it? That sounds good and feels good, but the idea of us having to depend on anybody is something we want to kind of run away from. And so... The idea of men being dependent on women, women being dependent on men, or mutually submitting, all that just is very countercultural. And here's the thing, all right? Not only do we need each other, but we ultimately need Jesus. And until we realize how desperately we need Jesus, we're always going to be trying to get too much out of each other that only Jesus can provide. And the reality is this. Every moment, every hour of every day, every one of us is in desperate need of a Savior. And thank God we have one because Jesus went first on our behalf because he loved us so much and died on a cross and rose from the grave. We're going to celebrate that tonight by doing this thing called communion. So you're going to get a piece of bread and you're going to get, a pe- pe- you're going to get some juice. And, and we're going to remember Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was poured out because we need him so much. Let's pray. Father, come before you and um, we are painfully aware of how desperately we fall short of that picture. Whether it be in our marriage or whether it be in just life and realizing that we don't even understand who we are, much less how we would relate to somebody else. So God, we are desperate and we are broken and we are sinful people and so we're in need of your grace and your mercy, and your love, and we're in need of your truth. So God, would you confront us head on with all of those things right now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.